Hello, and welcome to the Potential State Podcast. My name is Dr. Estelle Romanelli, and today I'm going to be speaking with the anthropologist Marcy Brinkdenan about educational processing. How do people understand and process the information that they experience in general? And I'm going to be using my examples and my experiences uh, in the therapy world and in the educational world. I'll be reflecting and explaining and discussing and playing with Dr. Brinkdanan about these concepts of how do people digest what we give them. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for talking with me, Essay. My pleasure, Marcy. My name is Marcy Brinkdanan. I'm an anthropologist. And we're here to talk about educational processing, which was a phrase I had not heard mm-hmm. until February. And my responsibility here is to think about what it means to different educators when people want to figure out how people make sense of what they're learning and the actual processes that happen. And so I've, I've outlined a number of them. I'll tell them to you. And you can think with me about if there's others. That's actually where I'm at right now in the writing of the paper. So, but if I say the phrase to you, educational processing, does it mean something to you? What would you, how would you define it? Uh, so, intuitively, without knowing what it actually means, I guess it would be how do people digest what they're learning and make it their own. So the processing is kind of breaking it down to whatever, to the way they, their map of the world, whatever that means. Each one of us has their own map of the world. Nobody reacts to reality, we only react to our map of reality. So I take in information that's limited by my own senses. Right, and then I make sense of it through the language that I have. And processing, I guess, would mean translating it, regurgitating it in a way that it can be digested through my own map. Can you say the definition again? Again, it's not going to be the same the second time, right. you know, but I, I kind of didn't catch the second part, so digesting what they're learning. So people have their map of the world, right? Which is limited by their senses and their sensory preferences and their meta-programs and... So they take in information that is limited by their senses, by their capacities to perceive. And out of that, it gets broken down and somehow gets fed into their own map, whether it enriches it or deepens it or just gets... If it doesn't even fit their map, it's not going to even get processed. It's going to be um, basically coming in and out without making a difference. How do we get our map? We are born with some of these things. Some of these are sensory preferences we're born with. Other ones are basically based on feedback and inputs that we've got throughout our life. Um, that is something we're... Con- so it was, it's constantly being reshaped and, right, and reformed and augmented and processed and enlarged and expanded and made more complicated and complex and differentiated. But, so we're born with it and then we are constantly working with it. Is it true for all kinds of learning? Or are there some kinds of learning that are... This is, we're already diving much farther into it, but um, I mean, maybe we'll take it back for a second before we talk about kinds of learning. So the, the concept paper is trying to work through processing, educational processing, and theories about it and, co- and ideas about it. Not, we're not looking yet for the tools, although I keep jumping to like, how do we do it? How do we do it? Sort of what do we need to know about processing to help both learners and educators slash leaders or whatever educators, let's say. Okay, I'll say that again. What do we, what, 
it's a really specific goal to understand processing for experiential learning. There's lots of theories about how to evaluate learning in the classroom or in other settings. But here we're really trying to think about, is there a special, like what do people need to know, both facilitators and learners, about processing that's like specially for experiential learning? When you're speaking, I'm thinking about Carl Whitaker, who was a family therapist, the father of the symbolic experiential stream in family therapy, which basically means anything that happens in the room is real. It's also symbolic of the, it's also the here and now, and it's also then and there. And he has a sentence which I love, which is, anything worth knowing can't be taught. Okay. I'll say that again. Anything worth knowing can't be taught. And the idea is that it needs to be experienced. So I, I would guess I would say for experiential educators, for any of the helping professions, it's got to be something that um, it's not just, it, it's not, if you want them to really have that, it needs to be also kind of a kinesthetic, emotional, spiritual um, experience. And for that, there's another concept called therapeutic impact. Impact is how much do the people remember our conversation? How much will you remember this interview? after a minute, an hour, a day, a week. And there are four components to that. So arousal, and you need to be, it needs to be something that's alive, surprise, something that surprises you, obviously. It needs to be effort to put work into this energy, into this session, into this lecture, whatever that is. For the learner. For the learner, yeah. And the last thing is contact with a problem, or we'd call it relevance. So if you have those four components, there's a higher probability that the session will last, that there will be impact. So I think, I don't know if exactly answering your question, but what we need to realize is that if you want people to, from my point of view, impact is, at least they're going to remember that, which means they're wrestling with the topic, which means they're processing. Processing means I'm in a relationship with this information. Mm-hmm. It's not just coming in and out through my, through my ears. So if we want people to process, to wrestle with what we're giving them, what we're talking to them about, uh, we need to have those components. So I'm gonna. First of all, that's fun. I like those. Those four things are Whitakers for. No, those are. are uh, they're called. They are Omer Chaim Omer. I can email them too. He did about about four papers in the eighties, and, and then he moved on to something else. And the the like header for this for those four things arousal. What did I say? Arousal. Arousal, surprise, surprise, effort, and contact with the problem slash relevance. That's called therapeutic impact. Okay. You sound all bored telling me about it, so let me get well, to some more sure. interesting I love this. Okay. <laughs> this is a huge concept. This is a big concept in my life. Yeah. Great. Okay. Maybe you just talked about it a lot, so it's kind of wrote for you. So, so I want to go back to something that we've been discussing a lot at the office, mm-hmm. and I'm working. I'm trying to like work on with everybody in the office and with the literature. Does anything worth knowing can't be taught? Yeah. So in the in the processing literature for experiential education, of which there's some. Not super, you know, developed, but there is. There's a few different models, and I want to ask you to think about them with me for a minute. Please. And then, and then I want to just go back to like what is processing for a second. But I like to start like this. So one of them is this idea that there's a debate in the processing literature whether or not people can just process on their own independently, okay. or whether the processing should be facilitated. So there's like facilitator led. FL, and it's called, and it's like uh, learner independent, that's not what it's called, but 
And so like... Right, and we're separating processing from the learning itself. I'm like, so teaching it and the, is the processing happening? Well, so, so again, we're trying to think about processing both from the learner's perspective and from the facilitator's perspective. So is it my job? Let's say, let's say regular university teaching, okay? Right. At what point... Most people think of processing, they think, we're going to take a break. We need to talk this through. We're going to have a circle and discuss what happened. Or we're going to talk in chavuta. We're going to talk in pairs. After the lecture. It's often after. Right. Sometimes people try to do it in the middle. Okay. And then there's a sense of, do you actually need to front load it? So there's two different models, and these both come from the sort of outward bound literature, sort of this nature experience. Right. So, and, and what I'm trying to get people to do in the office also is to try to figure out how much they think it's our job, or it's the facilitator's job, let's say a facilitator's job, okay. to guide the processing, and how much it's just going to happen because anything works, no one can be taught. It doesn't matter what we're going to do if people are aroused. Again, there's a question, there's this dialectic between right, right. how much do, does one, as the facilitator of an experience, have to build in, like, thoughtfully aware, kind of, that's why I said it's an English thing, but, like, with awareness, Moments of, of there's learning, there's like teaching, and then there's like moments of integrating, feeling, processing. Again, different, and, and again, so so there's there's just like this continuum. I'll just show you for a second. Yeah. So some people say it's all I have. I have to be thinking about their processing all the time. So I'm teaching you something, and I have to check in. Not not check. There has to be their check in or some feedback. There has to be this constant helping you to make sense of this experience all the time. I have to front load it, I have to do it along the way, and I have to help you wrap it up at the end. Okay. And some people say, if the learning's good enough, if I've created interesting enough content, or if the experience itself is so powerful, you're gonna take what you need from it. Right. I don't need to do any kind of holding your hand to help you make sense of it. You're gonna take whatever you take, and I'm gonna let you take, and we can think of it with traditional education too, like. There are things I expect my students to take away from my lectures or my discussions in class, but they are going to end take away what works for them or right. where it fits into their map. Right. So, like, where do you see your, when you're facilitating a program? Okay, I'm just going to ask. It's not visual, so basically, what I've drawn here is a continuum right. with arrows on either side. One side is really heavy on a facilitator, you know, directed processing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I get it. I get it. I think. I'm, I'm, I want you actually myself. draw yourself on here, like I'm when you're myself. doing it. Close to closer to the learning part, the learner's going to do it, uh-huh. but not all the way in the extreme. So it's past the halfway point, but it's more on the learner's side. And I guess I would say my responsibilities in the interaction, whether it's the lecture or this, the therapy session, I'm going to create as much as a visceral experience as I can. A certain point as they go, whether it's in the session and we go into silence and they can think about it, and I think they're going to be doing their own processing. Some, I, I think it's our responsibility to be available if they're saying, I just, I heard what you said, but it's not registering. So like, if they're asking for more, I will help them in the processing. Mm-hmm. But the, I, I can't really force the processing on them because I don't have their map of the world. For instance, I'm kinesthetic. If she's visual, my client, my student, there's no point for me trying to, you know, shove it in with my uh, kinesthetic language or with my kinesthetic map of the world if she's very visual. But I will be there if she's saying, I can't see it or it's not clear to me, right? Using visual language, I can come and say, okay, let's give it another way. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the ideas, at least in the therapeutic model, is the time between the sessions is the time when they process. Mm-hmm. And a lot of clinicians will say therapy is what happens between the sessions. 
the actual 60 minutes, 90 minutes that I see clients, how much are they going to be able to process? They were basically creating experiences that hopefully have a high enough impact that during the week, that's going to slowly trickle. Um, the metaphor, it's usually, I guess, it'd be more like water on a rock than like a lightning bolt. Tell me more, I don't know what you mean. Like, I feel like usually the processing is a slow, kind of slow trickling of ideas or softening of rigid core, core beliefs. Or I'll give you an example. I've been therapy for, you know, over a decade, right? So a lot of the times I'll hear something and I'll be like, wow, that's really important. And then I'll forget it within a week or two weeks. And, and you are the when I'm the client, as the client, just because I know that my defense mechanisms, my unconscious is not ready to hear it. So a lot of what we do in therapy is repetition. Like I'll be hearing the same interpretation, the same point again and again. So it's almost like, so it's like water, right? I, I remember it, but then it washes away. But slowly the rock is being shaped by the water. It's, it's rarely what we see, you know, those big Tony Robbins seminars. It's like an insight and within a second they processed it. And I mean, I studied coaching and for a while there. I thought that's what I'm going to do. And I was going to these trainings and like people were having amazing breakthroughs on stage. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I wish I could do that. And that's what I want to be doing. And then when I started doing the, the stage on it, I realized that it doesn't fit me or the way, it doesn't fit the way I work. I rarely have an insight that changes my life, that changes a pattern, that changes a behavior. It's usually going to be another drop, another drop, another drop, and that takes a while. So I guess it, it's learner-led with me being on call in case they're stuck, in case they need to remind. And many times, this is why I have a whiteboard on my clinic, because a lot of times I'll we'll write things on the wall, and they'll say, oh, I wish I could even take a picture of it. But it's clear to me that they're not going to remember all this. And then it's my job. And I say this to them. I said, I'm going to hold this for you. I'm going to remind you of this realization you had in a month, in a week, and next mm -hmm. year. The other model, first of all, I wanted to say about this is, is among sort of the people who see themselves in experiential education, most people, they want... They, they believe in this ideologically. They think this is where the work is happening. This is where the change, this is where the learning is happening. Right. But they're super control freaks, actually, about the process. So, and, and there's, there, there's this weird tension between saying, to help them actually process themselves, I need to do all this work here, but then it feels like I'm leading them. And there's this weird tension on this continuum and I've heard it from almost everyone I've interviewed, so that's why I ask first and then we discuss. Is that also most organizations? So it's that say an organization comes to M Square to consult about their curriculum, whatever, and they talk about, you know, the way they imagine the, the experience happening. They're going to take a bunch of kids to Israel. They're all going to take away their own experience. The idea is because it's experiential, it's supposed to be individually led, okay? Because we know it's not a frontal lecture. It's not just writing down like physics right. equations. Right. It's, there's something really personal about this like emotional, cognitive mix, physical, like kinesthetic experience. But but first of all, like brain science people are like, you have to front load. They're not gonna, there's so much information in a week tour of Israel, for example, right. that if you don't say to them, look for this or give them a sort of overarching metaphor, they're not they're not gonna actually take stuff away. Like, they don't know and, and not everybody is as reflective as the person you quoted before thinks that like... Well, I think it really depends which audience is, right? If I'm working with teenagers, okay. It depends how hungry the learner is. 
I mean, I'm thinking we'd have the whole range from like bored high school students who don't want to process it or just looking for fun to adults who choose and pay money to come to an experience. Mm -hmm. So I guess I would say like, Depends who's more who's hungrier, or Carl Whitaker or Brack Whitaker. He says there's the battle for initiative. Who wants this more, <laughs> right? So. about the battle for initiative. What? About the battle for initiative, Dafka. About which? There's two the battles. One's for structure. Okay. Who's going to lead the space? Ah, maybe I just method. didn't hear what you said. And the second one is the battle for initiative. Battle for initiative. Okay. Okay. Who wants this more? Um, I didn't hear what you said. And that's something that in therapy, the therapist needs to lose. I need to want this less than my clients. They need to want it more. But if I'm thinking about educational context, so the board high school student wants it less than me. And then I will need to be more active on the processing mm. just because he has no motivation. He doesn't oh. want to. But, um, you know... Um, a seasoned educator who's paying $2,000 for a training, he's gonna, he or she is going to be much more uh, hungry. Therefore, they, they will probably take more time to process it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a ratio between how much time and effort and money they pay, they spend, to the amount of initiative that they have. So here's another model I want to show you for a second. Please. How are we doing on time? We've got time. we got half an hour. I want to get into a question about um, like breaking down processing into parts. I just want to cool. like Bookmark that and we'll come back to it because sure. that's actually where I'm kind of stuck on the concept paper. Another model from the processing literature, the little that I read, is it's the same debate where at the top it's totally self-directed reflection, making sense, da da da. At the bottom, it's totally facilitator front-loaded, okay, or it's totally facilitator. But we're talking about the front-loading of not only the content of the processing, yeah. right? So yes. I can be giving a lecture. I and assume the content has been directed. Well, again, it's, it's actually almost irrelevant, but let's just assume that in any kind of education, the curriculum or the goals or whatever have been... No, it's not goals. So we're front-loading the content, now we're talking about front-loading the actual process. Yeah, we're basically... I want to just focus on the processing okay. for a little bit. I feel like the the content slash curriculum slash that, that's another... Paper. That's a different conversation. Okay, mm -hmm. go on. Let's say that the content has already been decided by someone. Okay. Again, whether it was, again, it does probably matter how much of it was the participant direct excuse me, directing that content, but okay. maybe we'll bracket it for a minute. It's a good question. Um, this is another model, this mountain model, sort of pyramid. So at the bottom, like you start a program, and it's really on the facilitator to, to, to say also what are we going to do, what's going to happen, how, and start people on this, to right. like start giving them processing skills. In the middle, the, the participant should be co-processing with a facilitator. Right. Okay. I'm not mad at this model, I just read about it, so I'm going to throw it out there. Co-processing. And the top of the pyramid, that's the goal, that you're climbing up the mountain, it should be a self-directed thing. Like, right. I know how to, I'm going to write about it, I'm going to dance about it, I'm going to do whatever I do about it, I'm going to act about it. Right. Uh, I'm going to paint about it, but I'm going to, I know... It's my fault. Yeah, and it's, I know what I need to do now, I know I need to take a break and just think, I need to walk, whatever it is. I know what, I know there's options, and I know that it needs to be done. To like integrate this information or this experience, and again, there's different models. Okay, so some people in the processing literature from experience can say the mountain speaks for itself. You took a bunch of kids out to the beautiful mountain somewhere. You don't have to teach them anything. They're here already. Look at this beautiful like natural wonder. Right. I don't say anything to them. Then it's gonna work, do its own work, and however they take it, they take it. Right. And then I should say, not again. Not everybody was there, and not everybody. So. This like building up of yeah. you know 
I don't know, what do you think about this processing pinnacle it's called? I guess there would be, I guess, you know, in therapy you call this scaffolding, right? I do need to scaffold some, some, some scaffolding for people to choose if they want to build on top of that. Can you tell me more about scaffolding? Scaffolding is when I give people options. So I can say, uh, it comes from narrative therapy. So um, you tell me something about it, and I want to ask you, like, so how was that, how was that experience for you, what you just told me about you and your boyfriend, for instance, so... She says, I don't know. So then I can say, and then I scaffold, I say, was it interesting? Was it funny? Was it scary? Was it crazy? Was so it you're building, like, stages. So I'm like, frames. I'm almost like giving them a few directions. Um, and then they can choose one of them. And then from there we keep on going. So I guess I would say, assuming whether they're high school students or university professors, we don't know how people are apt at processing. So what I could do is I could give some scaffolds. So you can hear a few ways you can digest this. Here's two or three guiding questions which you can do in your pairs. Or you can just write in your you can journal in your notebook. Or I'm going to be here in the corner if anybody has more questions. So I think a lot of times what I'll try to do is um, give them a few directions or prompts. But it's clear to me through the years is even when I give specific prompts, okay, pair up now and reflect on what we just did and say, how was that for me? And what do I know now? Or whatever. It's clear to me that some people won't. They'll just talk about whatever they want. Or they won't do it. Or they'll just go to the bathroom. Or they're just going to actually want some time alone. And I think through the years, I've realized that people take what they take. People do what they need to do. Um, and I guess that's coming more from working with adults. I think if when I was more working with young adults on a regular, when I was actually managing you know, a gap year program for emerging adults, um, no, the truth is, I have to say that. Also there, I mean... Even there, it was clear to me that if I push too much, they're just going to resist kind of being annoying. So I guess I would create visceral experiences, and I would kind of... So you are kind of the mountain speaks for itself model. I would say I would scaffold them the trails to the mountain. It's my, I, it, is, I, it is my responsibility to give them, hey, there are three different trails you can walk on. One of them I might also... I'll be walking on this trail if you want to come with me, but there's this one and this one and this one. Go for it. But I'm not just dropping them on the base of the mountain saying good luck. Yeah, I mean, the sort of framing ahead of time, what you call scaffolding, from also like other kind of theoretical traditions. I mean, one other is also from therapeutic kind of um, addiction stuff. So one is, you know, you take a bunch of people on recovery on a hike, a hard mm -hmm. hike of a mountain. It's going to be really hard. And you can just let them hike, and that's like an experience for itself. And you can say... Climbing this mountain is going to be like recovery, and it's going to suck, and you're going to feel bad sometimes, and you're going to have to work with other people, and you're going to be angry and sad or whatever, and like, and then the facilitator, you front load, and then you along the way will say, right, we're all having a shitty day today, it's just like when you relapse, or you like just wanted that little drink or something, and oops, you know, whatever, and then we're going to keep going. Like, there's still more to go, and did you talk to someone about it? Is that, like, what happens if you had a drink? You know what I mean? So that's a little bit more of a, that's where the mountain question, like, is a real kind of, like, do you, do you metaphorize everything there? Do you say this is always like that? And that's why we're doing it. We're not just to end the mountain because it's nice. You know, so that's more of a therapeutic I mean, I like the idea of, of like, anchoring the experience in whatever goal there is for that set, whether it's a session, a workshop, a training. Like, I like that idea because I think it, it's easy, especially when you're doing very visceral work, to, like, where are we going? What is this? Why are we doing this? So, I like, 
I'm taking the example you gave and like, yes, it is my responsibility to keep saying we're working on, like if I was doing a session now for therapists in Berlin about improvisation and therapy, we were doing a bunch of improv games, but it was clear to me that I, in order for them to be able to hold on to this, I kept needing to remind them why we're doing this. What's the, what's the common factor? Like, I like that idea. I don't know if I would use the metaphor, but I'd say, okay, we just did this game. This game connects to the idea that we just spoke about. It's written here on the board. And, and then at the end, what I'll also do is I will uh, recap the whole... I'll tell them what we did. I'll tell them the story of the mountain. Like, I'll say we started here, and then we went here, then we got this, and this over there. So... This is just maybe like a so guy. I'm gonna pause here again because I'm an anthropologist. Right. My main method is not interviews because I actually say people say a lot of things and then they do totally different things. For I'm sure. sure you observe this in your practice and all sorts of things. So if you have, you know, if there's a session I can observe or you know, like watch you do uh, playback theater or something, yes, I'd love yeah, to uh, come huh? observe and yeah, sure. if you could let me know if that's okay with the participants also. And yeah, we have our kind of mid-year performances. Yeah. Every Wednesday now. Sure. I'd love to. That'd be great. At nighttime? Nine. Interesting. Nine. Nine. Fantastic. On Wednesday. We like afterwards. I yeah. Again, I am scared. I'm not saying it's about you particularly, but we again build a really nice, like, coherent story about what we do, what we believe in, and then often in practice it's different, which sure. is, makes humans interesting. Right. <laughs> and that's why I believe in the method of ethnography rather than interviews. Right. Because I'm asking myself, I'm listening to what an organized, focused, clear kind of goal-oriented person you are and that again there's some I'm sure mostly from the theater stuff or other processes other like techniques you have that you're willing to embrace the mystery of whatever comes but again I'm like observing you as a person saying this guy's like definitely got it worked out in his head it's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine and I could just be you know we'll see I'd love to see it like what actually happens like how much as educators leaders facilitators can we then, again, my own ideology is also I'm going to give my students what I give them and I do want them to take what they need. But I'm real, like, I'm really organized and really, not organized in my head, but like I'm really, as a, as a professor, I construct a bunch of options, like you said, like this, I'm going this path, this, this, this path, you choose. But again, I just, I can't tell how much it's like ideologically or philosophically I believe in letting them choose versus I'm actually really giving them everything they're just letting them feel like they're choosing. And this is kind of a meta question. I think for me, is at the end of the day, from psychological testing that I've done, I'm conformist. And I think when I facilitate, teach, perform, I, I'm always, I have a clear, if it's not physically a piece of paper, an outline, like, I, I am structured. And I think I did a doctor in improvisation, so uh, when I took... <laughs> perfect. So I think that's a perfect it's example, perfect. right? It took six years to digest it into... What it means to improvise. And I built the course how to improvise. So for me, yes, yeah, my, my doctorate was a, 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 an action research about improv for therapists course that I developed and taught for years. It's just a hysterical sentence. <laughs> so I sure. guess for me, yeah, it's very much like, even though I, I deal with spontaneity and improvisation, right, therapy is very improvised, obviously improvised, but I'm, it's very clear to me the structures. Yeah. And I think I'm, I came to this field from a left brain kind of position. Like I wasn't naturally artistic, right brain, everything goes, like I think I had to read my way into this. Mm -hmm. So so even if I'm going back to that workshop in Berlin, it, I had, the outline was down to the minute, right? 
I didn't do everything I planned, right, obviously, but like it was very clear to me the flow. And sometimes, obviously, there'll be a moment of like, wow, let's do that one more time. I wasn't planning this. But the flow is very clear to me. And I will find a way to kind of um, bring everyone along that story. And I think I do that because I... I don't always think like that, but I like how, which experience would work for me as the learner. Like, what do I need? I need freedom, but I also need structure. Yeah. And if it's too airy fairy, if it's too anything goes, then a lot of times, as a learner or as a client, I'll feel like, well, where, what? Where, I, I would feel a little bit lost. I need someone to hold, and it's that yeah. concept of potential state, the space between reality and fantasy which is where learning, imagination, and play happens, has to have boundaries. Somebody needs to hold that for me. So my kids are playing with, with dolls, okay? So they know that, on one hand, they know that dolls are just dolls, and they also know that they're real, but they're, it's, it's bound by a certain hour. It's bound at a certain, a certain point, I'm going to say, it's bedtime. So it's my responsibility as a facilitator, therapist, whatever, to, to hold the boundaries, hold reality for them. And that's one of my roles. So wait, one second. I'll just say so. I'll just, yeah. So I think one. I'm like myself integrating what you said for a second. <laughs> just right. give me one sec. I just because we don't have. I'm trying to like think of what. I'm also like going between structure and improvisation in my head, like to use the time well the next little bit. And I'm really interested in what you just said. I'll just think for a second. Do you mind hearing one second? Process. You're processing. Process exactly. Right. Thank you. <laughs> give me a minute to process. Let me check with myself. You did, you did want to say something else, so I just, oh, I'm going to... Yeah, we're talking about how much do I control the path, how much do I guide. Yep. And if I compare this to the boundaries of the potential state, I guess I would say is... I don't know what that means exactly. So potential state is a concept from, from psychoanalysis, actually, by this guy named Donald Winnicott, who's a pediatrician turned psychoanalyst. He's coming from Freud's generation a little bit later, and then he broke off, and he basically said... The child is born into a fantastic world where he or she thinks they created everything. The good enough mother frustrates him slowly into reality, right? Not everything works according to what he or she wants. Mother, why is the mother? Sorry. <laughs> it's always the mother. And then in between, there's the potential state that where he has an imaginary friend, he's talking to his teddy bear, he's got the blankie. That whole space is between reality and fantasy. That's where the child uh, has imagination and play and wonder. As we grow up, that's the space where we experience love, awe, inspiration. For many of us, that potential state is gone, either through harsh conditions that we grew up in or just a rigid perception of life. And my job as a therapist slash educator, whatever, is to um, invite people into a potential state. That's why I call my institute potential state because I realize that's one of the things I can do well. I can build potential states and bring people in there. But my responsibility as the holder of that space is to hold the boundaries. So it doesn't, because potential state without boundaries is chaos, right? It's psychosis. It's la la land. Okay, it needs to be, needs to be limited by time, space. In this room, this is a potential state. We're going to be sitting here for an hour, and the next hour we'll be doing yeah. one, two, three. So if I go back to the arc of the experience or the, the story or the, the trail of the mountain, by me holding that trail and saying, okay, we started here, then we went here, I'm basically saying this will be or this was, depending on what time I'm doing it, this was our this these were the boundaries of the potential state. You guys played in this sandbox. This is what we did for the last time. Yeah. And your your what is called potential state? Your organization? Your potential state. Based on that potential concept, state. yeah. 
So again, one of the big questions in this paper that I've not been able to revise because it's such a big question is the issue of improvisation versus planning mm -hmm. for, for facilitating processing. And the literature deals with it in a very um, surface way right. because there's a lot of, and again, I heard it from people I interviewed, a lot of it is like, you know when it's going well. You feel it, and you like go, you adjust. And a good facilitator for processing beyond whatever content they're giving, or giving over, I guess that's like whatever they're trying to teach about, the actual holding that space demands both a lot of preparation, personal preparation and practice, and planning. Right. But... And there's this like magic ingredient of like some people have it, right? Some people, they can go with it. Like right now, like I try to teach my students, like I'm interviewing you. I had another question, but now I see really what I need from a set and what I think the most interesting thing is to talk to you about improvisation. Right. So I, as the facilitator or co-facilitator of this conversation, say, I'm going to put those other things aside. Right. I see right now the best thing to do, this is like a meta Right, yeah, is let's talk about improv because obviously I said a lot about the tension between script and improv. Right. So like, but I'm like taking an improvisational turn here, right? So right. I'm saying, okay, this is what I need for the next 10 minutes. I think this is going to, what I need the most from you is the most where you can, I would love to talk about four more hours about this. Right. But um, I, I think that one of the things I'm trying to write in the concept paper is not, is to not leave that, it's not magical. Okay, right. it's not like, and it's also not like either I have it or I don't, right? It's like, again, some people are born with more capacity to improvise, change direction quickly, whatever, of course, and so be able to get that developed over time. But I don't want to leave it, it's not like a mystery potion. No. So can we talk about script improv? And right, I mean, we all think that we can improvise because we've been improvising our whole life. And like, any, like, it's like listening, right? We all listen. But obviously, I can work on that muscle. So improv is actually in. It's kind of an art form that has disciplines in it, has guidelines. So just like, you know, when you start training as a therapist, right, you assume you know how to listen, but actually through the years you're learning how to listen, right? So I'd say improvise, everyone has the potential, the capacity. Some people are more naturally inclined to it, some people are less, but the whole idea of the doctor, again, was to train therapists to be more improvisational, right? It's still cracking me up here. Right. <laughs> but, if you, but if you think about it, it's, it's, on one end, it's an oxymoron, right? How do you teach someone to be more improvisational? But actually, it's not, because there's guidelines, and I'm proof for that. Like, you know, it took me, you know, 15 years of workshops to, to develop that muscle, and now I'm doing it more easily, but it's, it wasn't natural for me. It wasn't, or, you know, it wasn't like born like an improvisational performer. And I think people can train that and they can work on that and they can learn it's like the left i mean the guidelines you think again with experience nothing can be taught i'd like to come see this really i'm very right. curious yeah. right so yes i think if if ideally if we'd be you know this is what we're talking about in berlin if every single helping professional would have to take an improv course whatever genre doesn't mean dance music doesn't really matter really mm -hmm. they would be working on the muscles that are you know that would help them be more i mean this is Keith Johnston, like the, the, the godfather of improv. He talks about, we are all naturally inclined to say no. And when we say, in life, right? And if I say no in life, I gain security, I lose adventure. I gain, if I say no, I'm gaining security, I'm losing adventure. All I need to do as an improvisation teacher is flip that, make people say more yes. 
and then they will lose security, but they'll gain adventure. So Which you need, anyway, because that goes down to the surprise slash... Yeah, so it's called nice. um, arousal. Efforts, arousal, surprise, effort, relevance. Mm. And it's nice. And basically the idea is if we help people say more yes, be more in the moment, right? And then they will lose security, they will gain adventure, and they will be better improvisers. So it's not so much like either you have it or not. Yes, you have the natural inclination or not, but it's actually just habitual behavioral change. Why does saying yes help us be more in the moment? Saying yes, first of all, saying yes, the difference between spontaneity and improvisation, in my mind, from what I research is, is spontaneity is I'm doing with an impulse that I have to just by myself. Improvisation is already interacting with something else, a cup, a person, a, a lecture, a topic, a theme. And that requires a relationship, an interaction. And the yes and principle of improv, which all over the world they practice, is by saying yes, I am accepting, I'm accepting influence, I'm letting something into me. I'm allowing myself to be changed. And then the end is me bringing from that experience I'm coming out to you and changing you. So we lose security because I'm opening up the guard because I'm letting you in. But I'm gaining venture because now there will be a co-created, something new will be happening, like this interview, for instance, right? None of us owns it. It's a co we call this the third. There's a thirdness, that relational third that happens. That doesn't belong to you. Like this interview doesn't belong to you, doesn't belong to me. None of us could have done this by ourselves. But for that, we need to be doing a lot of yes-ands, like letting that in, I'm letting in your question, I'm letting it kind of go through my body, and I'm giving you an and. Can you tell me, you said to me yes-and in your recording, which was funny, and I liked it, but I don't think I have like a, what's the theoretical slash work practical thing about this yes-and? So the yes-and is like, if you want the cardinal rule, the universal rule, if you take any improv class anywhere in the world, theater improvisation. So the idea is yes, and I am accepting whatever my partner says. So I'm just thinking about my favorite improv theater now, like trying to like, wait a minute, is that what they were doing? So sorry, guys. So you're not, I don't necessarily mean to say the word yes, right? I'm accepting it and building, accept and build. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm accepting whatever you're saying, whatever you're gonna say now on, on stage, I'm gonna first yes that. Okay. So the so classic example is if we'd start a scene and you'd say, hey grandma, thanks for coming to my birthday. Right, so I can say, no, I'm not your grandma, I'm your sister, I'm blocking. Or I can say, I'm so happy to be here. And then I add, so I'm not just saying yes, agreeing to this game, this play. I'm also adding something. And here I got you a present. And then you can say, that's not a present, that's a dog. Again, you could, you could block that idea. We can say, oh, great, I love this present. Oh, it's a ring. So it's actually, it's, a, it's, a thou it's like dozens and dozens of yes and that we really what they create, I mean, there's, you know, there's 20, 30 with these guidelines, but like the yes and is the cardinal rule, like accept and build. And if you think about it, most of us are mm -hmm. experts at saying no, mm -hmm. or the more sophisticated is yes, but I love your boots, but I would never buy them. Right? So basically what I'm saying is <laughs> I'm blocking, right? So you're like, wait, do you love the boots or not? So it's the yes, but hey, let's go out. Yes, I'd love to, but maybe next week. So I'm actually, I'm not really yes ending, I'm blocking you. And that... I gain security, right? I'm gaining security, I'm gaining control, but I'm losing adventure. There will not be this adventure like of going out of whatever, anything else that life brings us. It's super interesting, but I'm out of time and you're out of time. So can I come watch you guys play? That was my talk with the anthropologist, Dr. Marcy Brink-Danan, about educational processing. My name is Dr. Asel Romanelli, and this was The Potential State. I'll see you next time.